Rachel F said, you can't unsee things now. I don't know if you're referring probably not to the post that I wrote about China Mielville's The City in the City. Oh, no. no. Okay, this novel by China Mielville is about two cities that occupy, or they're really like city-states that occupy the same geographical territory. And some people live in one city and other people live in the other city and they pass by each other every day. They drive on the same streets. They use the same buildings. But one city-state is they i both city states keep up the guise that they can only see their own city and so they learn from a very young age to unsee everything else that looks like the other city one is a pseudo communist one is a or a pseudo post communist one is a pseudo tech technocracy kind of thing and so one is like fairly shiny and new and doing these things and then the other one is a little more bland and blah and maybe more like classically eastern european i don't know but they at least pretend keep up the guise that they can only exist in their own city such that there's even a customs building in the middle and in order to enter the other city you have to go through the border control Anyhow, it's this very bizarre world building, but I think a lot about the unseeing concept as um, something that so many of us do every single day with so many things, right? We unsee things all the time because seeing them complicates things in a way that we don't have the bandwidth to process most of the time. And I think it's become a punchline to be like, it's capitalism, stupid, or blame capitalism. But when you start to see how the different machinations work, how the different systems play into each other, how things are connected, it's really hard to not just come back to hashtag because capitalism (laughs) or any other number of things that we've talked about, especially with the passion paradigm or with the labor of love ethic or these things that we're going to talk about today. We don't or we unsee them, even though we might know if I asked you pointed questions about what you owe your work or what you owe an employer, what a client of yours owes an employer versus what is actually their job, they could totally articulate the difference between their actual responsibilities and the responsibilities they believe they have, right? They could articulate those two different things. But in the moment, on a day-to-day basis, in their the practice of their work, they unsee that difference because it's just too cognitively dissonant to see it. Does that make sense? Okay. I just, I, I have a real life example though, where oh, please. just this week where I'm trying to like for myself and others I'm interacting with see things. So I, at one of our clients, a number of folks have been laid off and to help be supportive and give back our company did a resume workshop on Tuesday morning. It was open to anyone who saw the post on LinkedIn. We had about 30 people sign up. And so we did a resume workshop 
And one of the things we were talking about is how to format your resume. We were talking about how chronological resumes are not conducive to when you have done, and I use the terms, unpaid work. Mm. They're not conducive to when you were studying something. They're not conducive to when you were caring for a family member or had a different kind of project. So we want to make sure we find other ways to communicate the unpaid labor that you've done. And it just felt really good to name it. And people were like, oh, so it's just, just starting to exercise the muscles of what I'm learning is super exciting. And so thank you to all of you. And of course you, Tara, for bringing this together. Cause I feel like just little incremental changes might start a, a movement or be part of the movement. I would love to hear the very quick cliff notes on how one does format a recipe, uh, not a recipe, a resume um, that accounts for unpaid work. Yeah, we, how we looked at it and I can share it in our little app. It was like skills. What are the skills that you used? Time management, organizing resources, like project managing. Those are all things that you're doing as part of your unpaid work. And so being able to articulate those as skills that you have that are transferable to paid work um, was what we were talking about. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. Oh yeah. I love that, Susan, your comment there. Yeah. Yeah. When I, my, my husband was in the air force, so we would travel and then I'd have to go someplace and then I'd have to figure out what the hell career am I having in this place now? Um, and some of it worked because I started out in higher education. And so if there was a college around, I could normally shoehorn it. But when we moved overseas, that wasn't, I couldn't work at any of the colleges there because the education system is so different. And yeah, there was always questions about like job hopping because I'd changed jobs every two years or times in the resume. And so, yeah, I switched to more, I would group the skills by like their key qualifications. And basically they'd say, these are the qualifications. And I'd say, cool, here's all the shit that I did. That was that. And it, it worked pretty well, but it's a weird, it's people don't expect it. Yeah. I wonder how much in practice that's going to shift I wonder how much it's shifted post pandemic or post 2020 rather. And then I wonder how much more it might shift over the next 10 years as uh, more of Gen Z enters the workforce where I think there's less of an expectation of a sort of chronological through line to a career. I know we've been talking for decades now about millennials changing jobs faster and Gen X changing jobs faster. But I think we still, for the most part, entered the work world and entered higher education with the idea that we'd have a career, even if we switched organizations more frequently. Whereas I feel like Gen Z has a certain level of recognition that there are all sorts of different things that they might do in their life and that it might not have that kind of neat and tidy through line. Yeah, I think that's already changing. I'm thinking back. So last year around this time, I was hiring for my day job. That's like a fully remote company. And mm -hmm. we got flooded with unexpectedly flooded with resumes. 
Um, and we didn't have AI. So I ended up reading 3,500 applications myself. No, you didn't. Um, because we didn't, I just didn't, pr- prior to last year, I had hired for other positions with this format. And it's actually a really interesting process. We do an application and you can submit your resume, but we don't necessarily require it. We use the applications to do the first cut of people. But I posted the job on a Thursday, which is our normal thing. And probably previous jobs, we've had 300, maybe 400 applications over the course of two weeks. The plan was to leave this application open for two weeks. We posted it on Thursday. I think I had over a thousand in the first day. And I was like, no, I need to leave it open for the weekend because the people who are really well qualified and who are good are not, they're not the first people. They never are. It's always, you have to leave it open over the weekend because the people with jobs will apply over the weekend. So I was like, cool, I'll leave it open until I come back on Monday. And it was, there were 3,500 applications when I shut it down on Monday, but we didn't have any tools to be able to auto filter these people. So I had to hand jam go through 3,500 applications. And I will say most people did still submit a resume, even though we don't require it. But Mm -hmm. a lot of people were doing skills-based or like gapped Mm. kinds. It was a markedly different style of resume that I'd seen for previous positions. So I think there is actually... That's the ongoing shift, at least as of this time last year. Yeah. So it was, you said it was this time last year that you were hiring for that job? Yeah. So they both just hit their one year in, yeah, I think I was doing this process. We started at the beginning of October and it took me like two weeks of all day, every day, trying to go through these (laughs) as fast as I can to get to, these are the people we're going to actually talk to. It was, it was brutal. The reason I ask is because Kate Strathman was hiring for a job earlier this year, and she noticed that not only did she get considerably more applications than she's ever gotten in the past, but that there was a certain flavor to these uh, applications that were all of a flavor. As in they were AI generated or AI influenced in some way. And she discovered and then tasked me with writing. And I didn't actually, I haven't actually written it, but tasked me with, she discovered that there are services that now automate applying for jobs, some being AI based, some being more like just traditional automation, but that it's creating this huge extra burden on employers. And she was wondering about it from the perspective of, is this indicative of a new kind of bullshit job where people, highly skilled people are going to have to deal with the shit that AI spits out or automates to them because there's no way there's ways to filter 3,500 applications as long as the data is in a database that you can manipulate in that way. But at the end of the day, there has to be a human that picks the 30 people or 10 people or whoever many people you're going to interview. And then, yeah. It's It's so interesting because they are now building the tools on the client side. 
-hmm. So they're going to say, okay, give me the top 10 resumes that had X, Y, Z. Okay. Now narrow that down to people that are in my local area or narrow that down to people who are comfortable remote working remotely. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think it's going to be still ultimately a human, hopefully that's going to make a decision and kind of make a choice, but it's just absolutely fascinating how rapidly things are changing in that space. I have a friend who's a recruiter for, she's just like a private recruiter headhunter for like tech companies and engineering companies. And she has been really preaching to her clients, like your resume doesn't matter at this point, your network matters 10 times as much because nobody knows if what you're spitting out on your resume is true, is AI generated, is all of those things like the vetting process. And that kind of brings up an interesting question for me, which is for the introverted amongst us, like, where is that job market going to go? How do we present ourselves? Like those questions that have always been here, but especially in this world where we're like proving to our computers that we're not robots 10 times a day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's something I wrestle with personally all the time. There've been different times in the last couple of years where I've thought be cool to get a job again, or like maybe a part-time job or like maybe I'll apply this. This looks interesting. I'll apply and I've, no one's going to call me back, but what if, and you're right. It's like, when I think about it, I know if I wanted to get a job, it's not applying to random jobs. It's talking to the people I know who know people who might be hiring and I hate that <laughs> hard. Um, I, with different time as my mental health changes, my network connections are warmer or colder, right? Whereas five years ago, I had a huge network that I could have gone to. Uh, of course, I didn't need it then, <laughs> but I have a huge network I could have gone to if I wanted to go work at a tech company or whatever. And now it's, I know they're out there, but they're also really cold connections. One one of the ways that I think about that though, is the way I've always connected to people online is through content in one form or another. And so I think that's an interesting question of like, how are we teaching ourselves and the next generation to be representing themselves online in a way that facilitates that those network connections, that networking, even if it's not like a super comfortable thing. Yeah. That's a hot button in my business right now too, just like personally, mm. because I'm realizing how much I show up in relationships as like a linchpin kind of connector person but I don't, I don't have a blog. I have a newsletter. I really love the idea of someone needing to like open the door to enter into this space to access my content. And um, the content that I do end up spending most of my time on is like other people's work. Yeah. I've been trying to figure that out within myself too. Like, how do I present myself? How do I market myself? How, how do I do that? I don't, I don't do know that. at this point. <laughs> we haven't really talked about personal branding in this program because I wanted to focus more on the, the overall systems and what it means for the way we relate to work. But personal branding is a really interesting inflection point, I think, in future of work 
discourse and just work discourse in general. And it, I think in a lot of ways, it's changing really rapidly too, as the social media platforms quote unquote mature, or as Cory Doctorow would say, have become inshittified. The tools that we have aren't as good, even though there's more features and there's more people and there's more this, that, and the other thing, the tools we have for personal branding and for networking online aren't as good as they used to be, frankly. And the environment, I should say contextually, they're not as good as they used to be. And the environment is much more hostile to a certain flavor of personal branding. Um, and so that I think intersects with this conversation too, is what is a personal brand? How do we move beyond the personal brand? Should we move beyond the personal brand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, Susan, say more about your last. When we were hiring last year, I didn't get flooded with AI nonsense, mm -hmm. but partially that's because our initial, in order to submit your application, you actually have to fill out personalized application questions. They mm -hmm. are not ones that you could submit to an AI and necessarily have it generate good stuff. Like we ask about personal stories and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But what we did find was that there were a few, there are apparently like work from home YouTube channels that yeah. they scrape like we work remotely listings and essentially pitch them to their audience and what happened was that because in our job listing we say we provide you a computer for and it's like fully work from home and you can get a computer and there's these benefits and yada yada they and it's a real really job not a scam it, but they made it sound like a scam essentially because if you're sitting at home and you're like, oh, get a free computer and get paid to work from home, what do you, like, the assumption is that oh, it is a no. bullshit mechanical Turk or some nonsense yeah. kind of job. And what happened is though there were like two or three YouTube channels that had several hundred thousand subscribers that picked up and posted this job, which is one of the reasons we got flooded so quickly. But Almost all of those applicants were just shitty. And even if you can, there are a few application questions that we put in that basically, if you don't answer it, we're not going to, they're easy. They're like, find a product, one of the products on the website, and we ask you something about it. All we're trying to do is make sure you're not AI. So you can still get rid of people when they don't answer those, but none of those people that came in from YouTube were qualified at all. And they were probably 80% of our applicants came oh, from Lord. that, that manually, like you had to be like, there's shit, but like, you still have to decline all of them. And so it was really interesting to see that content works from both sides. And I think it'll be interesting to watch how hiring authorities deal with, how do you filter out AI? How do you filter out the automation? Everybody's dealing with massively more applications because people don't have to spend time on them. And even if you have the ability to tell whether or not they spent time on your application, which it's not that hard, you still have to read it and mm -hmm. figure it out and decide that they didn't spend time on it. And so I think, 
I think it'll be interesting to see what happens for HR and people that are having to review these because yes, AI can do some of it, but like Rachel was saying, a human still has to look at it and decide whether or not it's worth pursuing. It's the burden of dealing with all of that was so much more time consuming than application. I did, I hired somebody in March of last year. And the difference between March of last year and October of last year was massive. Wow. I'm really interested in the, let me, I'm just checking the time. We've got plenty of time today, but I'm really interested in the idea of an application for professional jobs versus a resume, because I think that there is a sort of cultural capital piece to resumes that is necessarily less inclusive than an application that everyone fills out. Not that's perfect because then there's questions of grammar and writing style and all of those things, but there's, yeah, Rachel, go ahead. Especially because we submit consultants for project opportunities. That's part of our business model. And we went so far as to remove names from, from the resumes that we were submitting as consultants because we are trying to, at every point, remove as much bias as we could. But then you get into that situation of where people are leaning more into hiring for diversity. So Mm -hmm. it's just such an interesting space right now. But I think as far as the resume is concerned, it's almost like after the deal (laughs) closes, it's all we need your resume to put in the file. Like Uh that kind of... So I can see that starting to shift and it's much more what Susan is saying is like filling out, entering information into an application. And it's just so fascinating what is happening. I'm hearing from friends that don't even meet with a human for that first round. They have to log in and answer prompted questions into a video camera. No. Yes. Yes at some of these big corporate jobs now. And it's just, and, and this is also among tech groups, but it's, it happens. That's disgusting. Like, I would I'm totally horrified. throw up I have to do. <laughs> I am, God knows I am perfectly comfortable in front of a webcam, right? And still the idea of that is horrifying to me. And I can't imagine for all of the people that are out there who do not yes. be on, they're not yes. on their webcams for a living. <sighs> and you don't know that, the question that sounds for a living, but that's until not really your, yeah. You don't know the question until it's prompted when you're in this recorded session, we need to bring some humanity back to this whole process. <sighs> okay. Now that we're all disgusted, <laughs> Let's talk about loving your work and how that gets taken advantage of, shall we? Really? <laughs> oh, what is going on here? Where is my um, hello? Wait, something has changed in Zoom, and I don't appreciate it. Why? What? Wait a second. Just a second. 
So Nyla and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, Tara, I know you're figuring uh -huh. something out. I'll just take this moment, but yeah. that this container has created such like a safe and also semi-dangerous space for asking really big, important questions. And we were talking about just holding this container open on Wednesdays going forward. And yeah. I'm happy to host or she's happy to host, but I wanted to spell that out and put it on folks' radar. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Tara, Can you're you welcome to jump in. Who knows? Maybe I will come keep coming back. If you all keep telling me horrifying stories that I might be able to write an article about <laughs> would be beneficial to me. <laughs> okay. I don't know why zoom decided that it was going to limit my options of screen sharing, but it is what it is. You can see yourselves. Can't you, can you see yourselves in my screen? No, thank God. Okay. I, cause the infinite. Oh, I hate that. Okay. Oh, all right. Now that I'm collecting myself again, and I hate tech problems. Let's talk about taking advantage of love. Okay. So where we left off last week was with the passion paradigm. And I know you saw this slide last week, but I wanted to review it because I was rushing a bit at the end. So the passion paradigm is a phenomenon. The, the is a phenomenon and the, it was coined by or named by a sociologist named Lindsay De Palma. She surveyed a group of engineers and nurses and graphic designers, people who choose that work for various reasons, but you have to be intentional about going into those fields. It's not something you just get hired at. It is a career that you choose, right? And so she surveyed the, this group of workers and asked them about how they prioritize what they want out of work and what their beliefs about feeling passionate or loving their work were. And she found three things. First, that doing work you're passionate about is more important than material benefits to this group of people. Something like 80% 80, 80 plus in those three groups shared that they believed that doing work they were passionate about was more important than pay, was more important than doing something that they had a special talent or skill for, more important than paid time off, all of those kinds of material benefits. She also found that loving your work is a form of self-care in that if work is going to take all this much out of you, if it's going to demand so much of you, then approaching your work with passion, with love, with the, the heat of ambition, then that attitude toward work makes it easier to accept the demands of work and makes it less corrosive on you. And then third, she found similarly that doing what you love helps you keep going, that it's this source of renewable energy that we bring to our work, right? Passion doesn't get used up. We might get tired, but passion doesn't get used up. And so the more we can tap into that, the more we can hustle and the more hours we can work and the more the bigger our workload we can take on. 
And so this is what she found this group of people to believe. And I think that these are things that feel checks out to me, right? That I have certain I certainly see myself in these things as well. And I think that I think these things aren't necessarily wrong, but it's the context in which we put these things that really matters. I actually think for me or I I make the choice that doing things that I'm passionate about, doing the things that are really me- fulfilling and meaningful to me are more important than a certain level of pay, right? There are things that I could do that I'd be making more money at, but I love what I do and I'm willing to make that trade. The problem comes when an employer comes along or a business model comes along or a client comes along and that choice is removed because the employer or the client or the person selling you a business course that's teaching you how to build this business model is saying, this is how you can do work that you're passionate about. And that means you're going to make less money or you're going to do all these different things that aren't in your best interest. And you don't really have that intention. You don't have that that choice to make that compromise. So I wanted to throw that out there is that these things are true in a lot of cases and the context makes all the difference. If you're operating in a context in which you're able to make uh, conscious, intentional choices about what compromises you're making, you're in a much better position to to build a work life that is good for you and that is healthy and sustainable. So that's, I wanted to tee that up from last week. Now, I want to actually turn things back on you again. I guess maybe this is the week that I'm going to sit back and relax the most, (laughs) but I would love for you to spend a few minutes thinking about how you evaluate what to compromise when it comes to what you need from work. First and foremost, use these categories. If there are other categories you want to add in, please do. Um, But in each of these categories, what do you need from work? Time. Is it a a certain number of hours that you're not willing to work uh, over? Is it a certain schedule that you need? Is it a certain flexibility that you need? Money. How much money do you need? How do you want to be paid? What do you need from work in terms of your personal support, in terms of community, in terms of skills and development? So first, consider what do you need in these different categories? And then second, how do you evaluate what to compromise? Just because we need or want things doesn't mean that they're all non-negotiables. I think we all have those things that are non-negotiables and then we have the things that aren't non-negotiables or we have the things that are negotiable. So I'd like to hear more in a few minutes about how you think about those compromises. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a little bit more time because this is a, a big piece. Let's go to 115, about eight minutes, and then we'll come back and discuss. Hey, Tara, can I just check? Sorry, it's Ellen. Are we writing just what we need before we think about the negotiations? Uh, 
yeah, write what you need from work before you think about then the compromise piece. Got it. Thanks. Yeah.
All right. Before we get into talking about this, I wanted to point out that there is a worksheet version of this in the Google Drive folder for this session. So this is a great thing to do with clients, with new hires, with people that you're managing. Just a great opportunity to get people to think intentionally about what they need from work. It's a question we're so often fixated on what do we, what does work need from us? When do we need to be there? How do we need to show up? What do we need to do? And work is always, or a, a work relationship is always two way, right? And we can't get our needs met if we don't know what they are. And I think that's a huge problem with the way that we work today. From you all, I'm curious what you noticed in terms of what you need from work and how you think about the compromises that you make when it comes to work, the intentional compromises that you make, or maybe the unintentional consequences or compromises too. I think that one of the things that kind of surprised me is my question mark box was privacy. Mm. And privacy in itself holds its own. I, I'm realizing that it dictated the rest of it for me. I need enough privacy and autonomy to feel like this is work. And then these are the decisions that I'm making that don't have to do anything with work, but are provided for by work. And maybe that's not always true. I'm thinking about inner spiritual or inner conflict decisions that don't feel like they're really connected to work, mm -hmm. but are also something that I want completely private from. Yeah. Yeah. You also mentioned autonomy. Do you see privacy and autonomy as being synonymous or are those two separate values that you're thinking about? I think they can overlap. I think a lack of privacy leads to a lack of autonomy. Mm. If you're always, if you always have a camera on you, then you feel like you can't slouch in your chair. Like those things, it all feeds together. But they also function separately if both are respected. Yeah. On the privacy front, since we've been talking already today about like automation and technology and the intersection of that with how we work, the increase in surveillance and employee monitoring over the last few years is mind-blowingly terrible. I went and to one of the companies, the, the apps that offer that kind of virtual surveillance for companies and tried the demo. And it was disturbing. Disturbing in that I thought, I'll, I'll think about this and write about this. And I'm sure that'll be interesting. I actually don't want <laughs> to think about it right now. It was very disturbing. Just the level of monitoring, the level of the intrusion into what's happening on your computer screen, which to me feels like a very private place, except when I'm sharing my screen, which feels very not private. It feels very like I'm digitally naked right now. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think privacy is a great addition and autonomy and how those two things mix. I love that. 
Thanks, Ash. Anybody else notice something surprising? Susan? So for me, what I noticed that was not, it shouldn't have been surprising, but was that pretty much all of my needs, all of the stuff that I want or need from work is either competing with, or it is usually competing with either time or money. Mm -hmm. And that Oh, that is true for almost all of the rest of them is I'm always weighing them against either the time that I need to do that thing or the money that I need to do that thing or get from that thing. And it shouldn't be surprising because that's how our society is oriented to work. But was surprising to me when I started thinking about what are the trade-offs, it's always I'm weighing mental bandwidth against money or mental bandwidth against time. So that was surprising to me. Yeah. Uh, can you give us uh, an example? Do you mind? Sure. Actually, something that I am weighing right now is leaving my paid job and going back to consulting full-time. The biggest, the, the biggest impetus for that is that my job is actually making me physically sick. It's as much as I say stuff here that makes it sound like a great company, the person I actually work for is super toxic. <laughs> and so like he's draining all of my mental bandwidth and all of my emotional bandwidth and the decision to tr decide that I am leaving my company next year, like in January, was a real trade-off of money versus health and whether mm -hmm. or not the stable income is worth giving up my, my physical health for. Yeah. And how about like the idea that's even a decision to be made is fucking awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, but that's one, something I've been thinking about for the last three months probably is when does it get to the point where you don't really have a choice and you have to prioritize your health and I think it'll work out, but also we'll see. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. about, that relationship with health too. When I started my business, I was like, so underneath any tax bracket. And then I suddenly had this tax jump and I was like, now I have to pay for health insurance. Like now there's all of these other life expenses. And I'm sure that's, it's not always just trading like a bad work experience for health. It's the work experience also maybe provides the insurance safety net to deal with the health problems that the work experiences create. Like it's, I feel for you <laughs> and with you. <laughs> yeah, luckily my partner has health insurance, so I don't have to worry about that part. But yeah, for some people that is a huge, that is a huge concern. Yeah, Rachel had put that in the chat too. Thank you for that. Yeah, and Ellen, I don't know if you can, if you have the bandwidth to comment on that, but it's something that is a very specific to America problem, this consideration that we have to make here between employment and health insurance and then health on top of that yeah like I can speak to it from a uh, health of myself and the choices I make around am I going to go to the gym or meditate before work or am I going to get in and take uh, the extra hour to make more money and I think I really resonate with Susan's point of the time and money trade-offs for the strongest ones here because they always mm -hmm. are the two things that you can leverage yeah, I always say to people, I don't know how people in America go self-employed without freaking out. Like the idea that 
you also have to pay for health insurance on top of all the other things you have to pay for in the costs of running a business is insane. Yeah, so we have aspects of that. I could go private and get seen quicker than I can on the NHS, but I can't afford it right now. So we have aspects of it, but nowhere near as starkly as America. So yeah, that weighs heavily for me thinking about it for you all. Yeah, I think there's also one of the things, anytime we're talking about health and the trade-offs around work and health, in addition to just health insurance being tied to work and the and kind of privilege around all of those things, there's also the varying levels of health insurance in the United yeah. States as well, in that the people who are more likely to be in a position to say, this job is making me sick, I'm going to quit, are also the people who are more likely to have... Um, a spouse who has the option of insurance or who have the money to hold off on a, a job or maybe even the money to pay for COBRA for a while. Um, whereas retail workers who are very easily made sick by their jobs or warehouse workers who are very easily made sick by their jobs tend to have crappy insurance. It's gotten a little bit better, obviously, since 2014, but it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I just downgraded our health insurance to save a little money every month. And the difference is shocking between the two plans. Yeah. Other observations from this part. Hi, Tara. I I was really hard pressed <laughs> to um, figure out what I would compromise on. And the thing that seemed the easiest, and this mm-hmm. is insane, given my own relationship to work is like skills and development. And I, like, I would rather have community. I'd rather have personal support. I'd rather have health and be like contextually in something that supports all those than meeting, I think I'd, I'd like to see then meeting my full potential, which is a whole thing, which is what I've always strived for. But when I look at my relationship to time, and I actually said that I feel like I could compromise on money, but not on time, just because the time and the autonomy are just at this, in this chapter of my life, just, yeah, non-negotiables. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I wonder how much, uh, like in this conversation with a, so even if we're not all self-employed, we're all in a self-employment mindset, I think for the most part, or their business owner mindset, how that shifts. And the reason I bring that up is because Rachel, you saying that you're most willing to compromise on skills and development, potentially, there's a lot of research or a lot of surveys being done of the American workforce, of course, especially uh, post 2020. And one of the things that workers complain about most or say they're dissatisfied with most are opportunities for development and learning on the job. And I don't have percentages off the top of my head, but I thought that's interesting. I think there's something maybe inherently 
skills and development oriented in owning your own business. <laughs> so like you could say you want to compromise on it and also like literally it's happening every day. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I lead a employee council for a client and the biggest tension in the group is they want to lead more in the group. That's mm. all like skills and development and that kind of thing. I just contextually where I am in my life, I'm, I live in a new place and I'm having all those fantasies about working at the gardening center in town because I want to use my body. I want to, and again, that's a pattern of mine too, when I get become disenchanted with the other work, but I think it's worth really, I don't know, I'll have to sit with all of this because it's tricky. Yeah, it is tricky. That's also a pattern of mine too. <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> I'm exhausted. Let me go be a bouldering instructor for a while. <laughs> um, okay, let's keep moving. As I said, I think that there's there's a real opportunity here to help people think more intentionally about the compromises that they make around work, recognizing that we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different financial needs and financial concerns. There are all these different things that we bring into any talk about what we need from work, what work needs from us, and how we compromise between those two. But just helping someone raise their awareness of what they need and how they want to compromise is a huge shift for someone who has always conformed themselves to work. So I'm just very loosely, I think we can think about this in two ways. There's There are the intentional compromises that we make, and then there are all the assumed compromises that we make, right? So on the intentional side, which is where we can take people is helping them identify what they really need from work, deciding what they're willing to negotiate on and what they're not willing to negotiate on. And then having actual conversations with their employer, their manager, their clients about what their needs are and what those accommodations are going to be. And I put clients in there very intentionally because one of the things that I've found has been really helpful for me working with clients or working with students or working just in dealing with people generally is just being way more open about the kinds of accommodations that I need. If you want me at my best, I need this. If you want me to be available at your event most of the day, I need this. And just recognizing that need is valid <laughs> and that I don't have to compromise that need if I don't want to and can afford not to. And again, this is not a, these aren't static things, right? These are constantly moving targets. It's, this is always going to be uh, a dynamic kind of thought process, but yeah, I think just really identifying what those needs are and how you might compromise on them or negotiate around them or just make people aware of them is hugely important. Um, and then on the assumed side, it's all the things that, I mean, this is how most of us live anyhow, even those of us who know better. Um, we conform ourselves to what work needs from us. We adjust our lives to meet the expectations of work. And then we try to manage those compromises on our own, right? It's a very individualist thing. 
or an individual family thing, right? Work needs me 12 hours a day. So, you know, honey, that means you're watching the kids every night for the rest of your life or whatever it might be. But those kinds of conversations don't come up at work. And when they don't come up at work, we can't create better solutions for them. Okay, so this leads us into this idea of the labor of love ethic, or this, as Sarah Jaffe so beautifully put it in the title of her book, work won't love you back. We might love our work, but work won't love you back, love us back. So I just wanted to read this little paragraph because I think it sums it up pretty well. But she writes, today's ideal workers are cheery and flexible, networked and net savvy, creative and caring. They love their work, but hop from job to job like serial monogamists. Their hours stretch long and the line between the home and the workplace blurs. Security, the watchword of the industrial ethic, where workers spent a lifetime at one job and earned a pension on their way out the door, has been traded for fulfillment. And the things we used to keep for ourselves, indeed the things that the industrial workplace wanted to minimize, are suddenly in demand on the job, including our friendships, our feelings, and our love. Like I said, I think that kind of sums up really concretely where we're at in terms of a particular trade-off that we've made between that industrial kind of Fordist ethic and where we are now, which is that work is everything and we owe it everything. And work is going to be the thing, the container for our friendships. Work is family, right? We, what kind of feelings do we need to have on the job? How are we being evaluated on the feelings that we bring to the job? And especially as women, how are we being evaluated by those feelings? So Sarah, uh, so Sarah outlines a series of values that she ascribes to what she calls the labor of love ethic. One is that we owe our work happiness, right? We show up at the job with a positive attitude and a smile, and just glad to be there, right? We owe our jobs flexibility in that the, the, the economy and the market all demand that companies be really agile, and that means workers need to be really agile too. And that's what we owe our work, and that's part of doing what you love is staying flexible. The labor of love ethic also includes a level of connectedness, right? Carrying around phones that have our work email on them and checking that work email after hours. I was just doing some research again on on these the surveys of the workplace, and that's a like nearly ubiquitous condition among professional workers, anyway, that they check email all weekend long. They check email on vacations. They check email late at night. I don't, <laughs> uh, but I used to years and years ago until I identified, hey, this is not okay with me. It used to be the very first thing I did in the morning. Why? And I think how awful that was for me. And then I think about how many people don't just do it, but are expected to do it. No, no. We're also, we also owe our workplaces creativity. 
we are expected to show up and be able to create on the fly, to be able to brainstorm on the fly, to put that kind of energy into our work. Care, of course, we've talked about that a lot, Uh, a certain level of boundarylessness, letting, not just letting, but embracing the dropping of the veil between work and home. When I have many problems with the concept of work-life balance. And for many years, I would have said, I believe more in work-life integration. And honestly, the truth is I don't believe in any either at this point. I think work-life integration is a great way to justify having no boundaries around work. (laughs) And it's been taken up around the workplace well-being dialogue and no, <laughs> no, I nothing. I I don't think we need anything more to to encourage our boundarylessness. And then we also owe our jobs a, the sense of fulfillment, right? Or the performance of fulfillment, the performance of meaning, right? We our work, whether it's coworkers, bosses, clients. An audience, we feel a duty toward performing fulfillment and meaning and purpose from the work that we do. And for some of us, we do find fulfillment in work and we do find meaning and purpose in work. And does that make us better workers from a like applied perspective or does it just make us better conformists. When we recognize these qualities in the expectations we have of ourselves and our work, it gives us a framework for starting to notice exploitation, right? And exploitation might sound like a really strong word here, especially when we're talking about happiness and flexibility. But I think about exploitation simply as those places where the trade is unequal where I'm not receiving from work what I'm putting into it, where I'm not being compensated and not just financially, but in other ways as well, where I'm not being compensated for what I'm putting in. And there's part of our economic and and market system in which laborers are never fully compensated for their work. That's how capitalism works. But at the same time, I think we can say that there's a gray area there where workers can be better compensated and where the exchange can be more fair than it currently is. And I also see this not just in terms of employers and employees, but I see this a lot in terms of self-exploitation among small business owners and freelancers as well. So I wanted to call that out too. We're going to do a whiteboard again. What I'm curious about is what are the kinds of compromises that you might make in the name of love? (laughs) So whether it's love of your coworkers or the performance of love of your coworkers, the love of the work, the love of the mission of the work, right? So whether that's the mission of a company you work for or your company or your work, there's that's often used as a way to extract more from workers. And then the customer, and I had the customer in quotes simply because customer can be 
so many different things in today's market, but I'm going to pull up whiteboard. And where is it? There it is. So I gave you some examples in terms of notes here, but let's take about five minutes. So 146 and Think about the different things, the different compromises that you make specifically with this idea of doing work that you love, work that you're passionate about and take your time. If there's, if you want to think on your own and don't want to share also completely fine. Otherwise we'll see you back in about four minutes now.
right. If you want to finish up the note that you're working on, I'm very impressed. <laughs> I was slightly concerned that this was a little unclear. It was unclear in my head and you all did amazing things with it. I suppose that's not great since these things were so top of mind, but yeah, this is great. I don't, my guess is that these things aren't surprising to you, but I'm curious if anyone has any observations or if there was a surprise or yeah, I just, any reflections on this that you want to share before we finish up, start finishing up anyway. This was part confessional for me because I, in my head, I'm like, oh, I don't do that anymore. But when I'm really honest about it, I totally will miss lunch just to have a bunch of client meetings all back to back. So yeah, it was confessional for me. Confession can be very cleansing and good for processing this stuff. Say your Hail Marys and her. Ave Maria. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm not Catholic. I don't know. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. I think these are also like really good, again, really good conversations to have with the people you manage, the people that you coach, um, whatever kinds of relationships you have, um, with other folks around work. Um, because sometimes these compromises are fine. And sometimes they go too far and it all depends on context. It depends on our personal needs. Um, but unless we're willing to talk about it, unless we're willing to make these things known so that we can be intentional about the choices that we make, we're crap out of luck. Anyone else? I'm so glad this landed. I will, as I have been, I'll take this uh, whiteboard and add it to the drive folder in case you want to review it further. I know I'll be reviewing it further. Um, I feel like there's a bunch of article ideas in here. (laughs) I feel like there's also this maybe like subtextual role of not just work but what is our role inside of human relationships and Mm. connectedness and like where does where does the love of work sit compared to a being worthy of work or this role or this relationship or whatever like I could see the context of just this framework being applied to personal relationships to the immunity of change exercise that we did earlier yeah, this like really just deepens the whole conversation. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I'm really interested in, at the that intersection of the things that we do for love of work and the things that we do for love of people when it comes to how we relate to those that we work with. And Charlie Gilkey's book that came out earlier this year this one team habits highly recommend but one of the things that i didn't feel he completely addresses and i think he would say the same thing is is that intersection it's like how much of the stuff that we do to make work better for each other and to make this relationship with work and the people that we work with more nurturing and sustainable and healthy where does it 
what are we getting paid for and what are we not getting paid for? And I don't think that there is an answer to that question, let alone an easy one. But I do think that there's, because the exchange in work, whether it's most often with employee-employer relationships, which is what Charlie's speaking to, because the exchange is often so unequal, it it's a lot to ask of someone to bring all of those kind of emotional and interpersonal skills into the workplace. Yeah. I asked him about it in our interview, but I don't know. Anyhow. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to close the whiteboard. The last thing for today that I wanted to get in, whoops, sorry, I have to do this, share screen, this, share, and back to here. Okay. It's just thinking about the different levels that we can work on solutions for these things. And, and we have different levels of ability and control over each of these levels. We have personal solutions, right? How can I look out for myself? How can I be more intentional about the compromises that I make? We have interpersonal solutions where Charlie's book comes in really handy. How can I work with others to improve things for all of us? So whether that's coworkers or whether that's your team members or whether that's your clients as well. It's one thing at Yellow House that we think about a lot is how do we make this working relationship work better for all of us? It's not just us looking out for our team. It's not just us accommodating clients, but really where do we find, how do we find that working relationship that makes everything better for everybody or more things better for everybody? And then of course there's systemic solutions. And we've talked about that today already as well around healthcare. Having a in the US, a Medicare for all model would mean that we have more choices and more ability to negotiate needs in terms of employment, because that wouldn't be something that is on the table. It's just something that we would have. Um, and so I think a lot about those systemic level solutions as well. But regardless of the type of solution, I wanted to leave you with a mental model that I use constantly, which is thinking about these choices in terms of an algebra problem. I'm always thinking about what is the variable that I need to solve for first and then next, and then how do all of those different variables cascade so that the things that are more negotiable for me, the things that I am willing to compromise on more, don't come up toward the end or don't come up until the end of solving the problem, right? So if you think about a multivariable algebra equation, and I'm sorry if you haven't thought <laughs> multivariable algebra equations in decades, but if you're going to solve for a particular variable, it changes what the other variables are going to be, right? And so the most important variable is the one that you start with, right? So if as you look over what we talked about today in terms of compromises, I heard for many of you time 
was that sort of number one variable that you want to solve for health autonomy, privacy. These were variables that you ranked very highly in terms of what your needs were. Given that need that you don't want to compromise on, what does that mean for how you work? When it comes to traditional employment relations, that means the kinds of jobs that you're looking for. When it comes to business ownership, it means looking at everything, right? Your whole business model can be based around the variables that are most important to you, the things that you are unwilling or don't want to compromise on. And I think that's an approach that is really underappreciated, underestimated, especially in the world of small business ownership, because we tend to think that there is a right way to do things or that there is a set number of business models that we could choose from or that there's some best practices that can't be touched. And the truth is, none of that is true. We can build it from the ground up as long as we're thinking about what we need from work and how our business can bend or flex to get to that solution. <laughs> Rachel says she's not hireable. <laughs> oh, Rachel, that surprises me. That you don't have a business plan, that is. Or something. Oh, that I, yeah, I just, I've got a mission statement and our values and who we are and what we do. But do you remember, oh, the one-page business plan and the five-page business plan? And it was just like such indoctrination I found like decades past. I don't know if it still exists today, but. Hey, I think that it probably does in the small business administration or whatever, (laughs) that free coaching and stuff. But yeah, if I had to apply for a loan, a self-funded, there would be no way to apply. Totally. Oh no. Susan says liveplan.com. That sounds exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. A business plan today is totally useless. If you were to write up a big old business plan the way they taught for years and probably, and like you said, probably still do, it would change tomorrow or it would have to change tomorrow or you wouldn't be in business anymore. So anyhow, work creating work. Yeah, for sure. That's true. Accountants and financial planners. So yeah, Uh, any questions from what we covered today? Any questions about the algebra variable mental model or maybe how I might be able to give you a better mental model for that? Any questions, comments, concerns? I I would love to dig a bit deeper and if there's any resources to point to Tara around systemic solutions. What can we, especially as business owners, what can we advocate for on a systems level? I know what I can do within my business framework and the things that I'm advocating for and trying to push for, but I would love to, along the lines of some of what I've already forgotten her name, like the, not every role has a union for it. So where do we, where can we gather to advocate? Yeah, I want to do some serious research in the next year on unionizing among 
non-unionable kinds of work like we do. So that's one thing. I think there are organizations, not I think, there are organizations out there that are looking at interesting ways to create solidarity and bargaining power outside of the regular union structure in terms of freelancers, especially writers. And I think even with the Writers Guild strike from this year, that because those aren't for the most part, traditionally employed people, right? They're professionals that get hired on contracts, some of them multi-year contracts, but contracts nonetheless, they're holding down multiple gigs. They go from gig to gig. And so that's, I think that's really interesting how public that was and how I think there's a lot of media organizations that are unionizing in ways that they weren't 10 years ago. So I do think unionizing and sort of solidarity efforts and bargaining power efforts in general, exercising worker power, any kind of solution that bumps up against that is a systemic solution that I think is probably worthy of advocacy. In the U.S., Medicare for all, single-payer health care, whatever, not employer-based health care. I found, how did I find this? Where did I find this? I think it was a web ad. There is a industry lobbying group for employer-based healthcare. The health insurance companies have a group advocating lobbying in Washington and putting out marketing materials around how great employer-based healthcare is. What are you even trying to pull? That's ridiculous. Nobody thinks that. Nobody w- there are uh, there's a huge faction of people who don't want to lose the healthcare they have through their employers, but I don't think anyone's you know what really works employer-based healthcare. <laughs> Anyhow, so there's that. Universal basic income is another systemic solution that would serve. And there's all different ways that may be administered and taken up. And there's different experiments that have been done around that. But no matter how you slice it, giving people money always makes the options easier to find and take advantage of. So that's another big systemic solution. And then the last one, I think that's still being very much talked about seriously is some sort of guaranteed uh, jobs program. So whether those are climate jobs, whether it's something more that uh, more what looks like um, the Public Works Administration from the Roosevelt era or something else, tech jobs, government tech jobs, I don't know. But that is definitely something that's on the table with a lot of progressives is a job guarantee specifically through that kind of employment around things that we really need, not just not busy work, not bullshit jobs, but things that would actually make a material difference here in the U.S. And then I think that I obviously have a very U.S.-centric view of things because this is where I live and this is what I'm most familiar with. But there are other countries that have different systems that while there are pros and cons and there's ways that it could or couldn't work here, I'm always thinking about how do they do this in Europe? Uh, How do they do this in the places that don't have all the baggage that we have around individualism and the American dream? And what are they thinking up? 
that might not even cross my mind. <laughs> so those are some of the places that I, I look to for systemic solutions. And then resource-wise, I love the Roosevelt Institute. There, it, it is what it sounds like. It's a think tank based on the ideas of FDR. So it's it's got it's a sort of maybe capital L liberal bordering into progressive economic think tank that does a lot around labor issues and the broader reach of that. And then also the Institute for New Economic Thinking has a phenomenal YouTube channel where they have economists from all different stripes talking through progressive economic concepts, economic analysis, tech stuff, legal stuff, but they do it so beautifully. One, like the production value is super high, but also it's really engaging and they do a, just a great job. Whoever their content editor is does a phenomenal job of breaking things down so that you're, you've got these multi-PhD economists who are who could be speaking a different language, but they're not. They're speaking a language that you can totally speak. So I love their YouTube channel. They have a website too, but the YouTube channel, so good. And so lots of systemic stuff there as well. Yeah. Any other questions before we wrap up? Hey, Tara, I just yeah. wanted to footnote. I loved the Ezra Klein, Sarah Jaffe interview mm -hmm. and just this idea, like what makes a human life valuable? And that's, I know like work-life balance has been like beaten to death and in the global company that I used to work at, it was like their department, the HR sub-department was called LifeWorks. But what is the antidote to loving your job? What is the, I'm just, I was glad at the end of the interview, they just at least said, this is what you can do to counter that, or this is what you do to complement or supplement not loving your job as much. What is the, what is the other side? Just naming it as something that feels super juicy to me, just because of the, what I center on in my work and in life. Yeah. I think part of that is keeping in mind the many definitions of the word work. <laughs> and when Sarah Jaffe says work won't love you back, she's talking about a specific iteration of what we mean when we say work. And I think it's within keeping that idea in mind, work is something that we derive purpose and meaning from, but we don't have to derive purpose and meaning from a job. And keeping those things separate as much as we can, I think is really important, really critical to navigating that piece of it. And even for us who have complete control over our work or what passes for complete control of our work, I think it's beneficial to keep that separation too. I have a job and I have the work that I do. My job is, you know, wonderful and that I get to talk with you all and I get to pub hit publish on Substack and hit publish on my podcast. And that's great. But the work that I do is what is actually meaningful and valuable to me. And yes, that happens in these conversations, right? Like the Venn diagram overlaps a lot 
for me, but recognizing that there's the structure that is the job. And then there's the work that brings the meaning to me is one way to think about navigating that. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap up. We've got one more session next week, but it, we have fun, hopefully for everyone, but Ellen, happy Thanksgiving. Ellen, happy Thursday. Uh <laughs> Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and otherwise I will see you next week. And uh, yeah. Thanks so much for a great conversation today. Thank you. Bye. Bye.